<clears throat> Let's call now upon this great God in whom we stand to give us his spirit to help us now as we consider his word together. Our God and our Father, we, we thank you in the name of Christ. We thank you for the power, his power, your power revealed in the resurrection. Power of our triune God revealed in those ordinary, everyday things that we see in our lives. And, and particularly, we marvel at the power at work within us to save our, our souls from hell, to deliver us from the wrath that was justly due to us, to re- reconcile us as sinful men and women to a holy, holy, holy God, change our hearts, to give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Father, help us to lift up our voices in thanksgiving to you. Not just our voices. Help us to humble our hearts before you in humble thanksgiving for all that you have done, for all that you are. Help us as we look together at Psalm 138 as a meditation on the causes of our thanksgiving before you. We ask this in Christ's name. You take your seats and, and turn with me to Psalm 138. And that might surprise you a little bit this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, we've been working our way through the book of Judges. And we've come now, there are three chapters remaining. And there was just something in me. I just could not bring myself. It's rare that I interrupt a series. But it was, it was hard for me to think about doing Judges 19 on, on, a, on a Sunday following the weekend when... Many of us have gathered together with, with family and loved ones to express our thanksgiving uh, to God. So uh, I chose Psalm 138. Psalm 138 meditates and contemplates the being of God and all of his goodness and his attributes, but also particularly his works among his people. Now, of course, Thanksgiving is a secular holiday, and it's not something we ordinarily as a church mark those kinds of, of events But it is good and right for all peoples in all places at all times to give thanks to God. Even for whole nations to do so. In fact, that's one of the that's a theme of one of the stanzas that we're going to see in Psalm 138. But there are two problems as I think about this particular holiday in light of my own perspective and my own inner workings. I've kind of as I've thought about this and meditating upon Psalm 138 and thinking about this particular uh, holiday weekend, there are two things that I see that I often myself get wrong, and perhaps maybe you can relate to this. First is that the, the event of Thanksgiving eclipses the act of Thanksgiving. Can you relate to that at all? That, that all the planning and all the preparations and the travel and all those kinds of things ends up eclipsing what we're actually supposed to do. You want to think about it this way, the noun ends up being more important than the verb. The event of Thanksgiving becomes central rather than the act of simple, humble praise. But secondly, and I think this, is, this has become more and more pervasive in our culture, and I'm going to read a quote in a minute that shows it wasn't always this way. But Thanksgiving always must have an object. We are thankful to someone or something. We're not just thankful in general. We have a, just a general spirit of thankfulness. Well, thankful to whom? Where do we believe these good things that we have 
the goodness that we receive, where do we believe it comes from? And sometimes it's right. It's good to express thanks to, to men at times, to men and women at times. There are people who have poured into our lives. It is good to say, I thank you for what you've done for me. I, I can thank my, my, my parents, for example. I can thank my spouse. I can thank my, my children. I can thank many of you for things that you have, have done, the ways that you have prayed and loved. But ultimately, we, we must come back to this, this reality that all thanksgiving is ultimately, finally due to Yahweh alone, to God alone. He is the source of all good. In fact, as we look at Psalm 138 here in a moment, David declares that it is the duty of all nations, all people, and in fact, every individual person, it's the duty to give thanks to God. To give thanks to Yahweh. In fact, many of the founders of our nation understood this. It was something that I think as a culture, as a nation, in large measure we have lost. Many of the founders understood the necessity of calling upon the Lord in thanksgiving as a nation, as individual people, as communities of faith. In fact, on the 3rd of October in the year 1789, the very first president of our nation, President George Washington issued a formal proclamation, a formal proclamation of thanksgiving. I'm going to read just a few excerpts from this proclamation. You can find it with a very simple uh, online search. Listen to what he says. This is a formal presidential proclamation. Imagine this. Whereas, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for his benefits and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me, quote, to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore... The proclamation reads, I do recommend and assign Thursday the 26th of November next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of all nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Given under my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789, President George Washington. It was a call. It was a recognition that there is a duty among every man to offer thanksgiving to the Lord. To give thanks to the great ruler and Lord of nations. And as for the Christian, there is laid up for us an even greater wellspring from which we can draw our thanksgiving. That thanksgiving owed to that great and glorious being 
I love the way he puts this. Who is the beneficent author, author of all good that was, that is, or that will be. Psalm 138 is a song of David. It's a song in which he meditates, he contemplates the reasons that he, give thanks, that he gives thanks to God, as he says, from his whole heart, from his whole being. So let's read together the psalm. It's a short one. It's just eight verses. The title of today's sermon is Thanks from a Whole Heart. It's a psalm of David, Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You may even notice in your Bible, uh, I'm reading from a, a copy of the ESV, and the way it's formatted on the page, the three stanzas here are, are set apart, or there, there's a you'll see an extra space or an extra line between verses 3 and 4. So verses 1 through 3 mark the very first stanza. And in that stanza, we learn that, that David praises Yahweh, praises him because God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Then in the second stanza, verses 4 through 6, David praises Yahweh because he rules above all authorities. He is the God who rules over all men and all authorities. And then lastly, the very last two verses form the final stanza of the hymn. David gives thanks from his whole heart because God rescues and delivers. God rescues and delivers. Let's, let's look at the first stanza, verses 1 through 3. God keeps his word, and because God keeps his word, he is worthy of our thanksgiving. And David says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. You ever notice the fact that it's very easy to praise with your lips while simultaneously your heart is grumbling? Or is that just me? We, we have that capacity, don't we? And partly because we, we socially we know what we're supposed to do. We know what we ought to be doing. And so we'll conform to those outward things. But inside, our hearts can be far from thankful. We can be grumbling. We can be complaining inwardly. And, and, and what, what David's realizing here is that it's, the praise that is due to Yahweh must be a, the experience of your whole person, both inward and outward. It is not just the praise of your lips, but the meditation of your heart, the thoughts and intentions of your mind that are owed to God in thanksgiving. It's insufficient to praise with our lips that don't speak consistently with what's going on in our inner man. And David expresses this whole heart thanksgiving to God. But then he uses an interesting phrase. He says, before the gods, I sing your praise. Now, is David professing belief in other gods? Saying that there are other legitimate gods and he needs to offer his praise before them as well? Well, of course not. 
Absolutely not. In fact, he's actually speaking consistently with what the Bible teaches in, in multiple places, Old Testament and, and New Testament, that there are, there's only one true and living God. And yet, we know this is true, yet men will create in their own image false gods, idols of their own hands, their own making. So, for example, Isaiah said, He's speaking about the Assyrians in this particular context, but he says, They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. And of course, we've been looking at this over the last few weeks in in the the interplay between Dan, the tribe of Dan, in the book of Judges, and and Jonathan, this Levitical priest, and and Micah, who built his own household gods and forged a a carved image. Jeremiah says, There are... Where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. And of course, Paul in the New Testament speaks to this very same issue, writing to the Corinthian church. He says, we know that an idol has no real existence. Now, that's a fact, right? An idol has no real existence. But does does it necessarily follow then that an idol can have no influence over us? Does it, does it? He says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, wait, he's got in quotes, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. So then why does David even bring this up then? Why is he offering praise to God? He said, I offer thanksgiving to God with my whole heart, why does he even mention these other gods? I think it's a humble recognition from David that these idols inhabit his own thinking as well. David said, I need, those need to be subdued in me. I need to recognize them. I need, I need to own them for what they are so I can repent and turn from them. David is acknowledging that there is idolatry that surrounds him and that there is idolatry within him. And he confesses to God that even above all the idols of his neighbors, even above all the idols of his own heart, that Yahweh is worthy of his praise from his whole being. Other gods cannot keep promises. See, that's what's key. Other gods cannot keep a promise. We we may even, due to the deception of our own minds, or the deception of a culture around us, begin to believe and think that maybe such and such idol really can keep a promise to it. Maybe it, it can help us in some way. But we know that any, any supposed word from any other so-called God is worthless and reliable. And I wonder, can, can we say that this morning? As you think about where, where you are right now in your own life, can, can you say that you seek to praise God above the idols that capture your affection? And that your desire is for your whole person, your whole man, your whole woman, to give praise to God apart from all these other distractions, all these things that occupy and vie for our attention. Now notice, notice what David expresses next as he thinks about his worship and his praise and his thanksgiving of Yahweh. He says in verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. The Yahweh keeps his word. Now, this is very interesting. When, when David, he says here, I bow down toward your holy temples. He meditates upon his duty of thanksgiving. 
as he, as he thinks about all that God has done, he says, I bow down toward your temple. Now, there's a little bit of a trick question. Where was the temple to which David bowed down? Better yet, maybe the better question is, when was it? It was still in the future. There was no temple. So is David crazy? Is he just making things up? Is he kind of naming and claiming? Because we know that David had said, David had actually set out to build a house. He said, I, build, I live in a house of cedar, but my Lord, my God, still dwells in a tent. So I want to build a house for the Lord. Now, that's a noble idea, but the Lord basically confronted David and said, yeah, that's a great idea, but you're not going to do that. But David is believing God's promise, because what did God say in return? I'm going to raise up your own son who will build me a house. But here's the catch. I'm David, I'm going to build you a house. Dynasty, a lineage from which Messiah will come. You can go and read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You read the whole chapter, it's marvelous. The interaction between God and David and the promise that God has made to, to establish David's throne as a perpetual, eternal, royal throne. And David remembers this promise. So as he says, I bow down toward your holy temple, what he's saying is, I'm claiming your promise that you will provide a king who will one day deliver this king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here, he's not speaking of hundreds of offspring and hundreds of generations. He's speaking of one particular offspring who would come from the very lineage of David. And so it was more than a mere building in which David had placed his faith. It was not a building to which David looked. It was not a building for which he gave thanks. He understood that Yahweh had promised to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness through David, through David's royal seed, David had promised, God had promised far more than a place of worship. He promised an eternal kingship. God goes on to say, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So David is saying, I bow down towards these promises. I bow down in a, in a holy reverence, a thanksgiving for what you have, have promised to deliver. And then he says, and I give thanks to your name. He gives thanks to the name of Yahweh because God's name itself signifies his covenant-keeping faithfulness. And the way that Hebrew poetry is often structured, we'll have line upon line where often one line will be magnified and enhanced by the very next line. And that's what we see here. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. David uses this word, this, this Hebrew word, that we, we, we need about a hundred English words to translate it because it is so packed with meaning. It's, it is the word hesed. It's, it's God's covenant faithfulness. It's his steadfast love. It's the immutable aspect of his divine covenant with men. And he says, I have, I bow down toward your temple. I give thanks because, or for, 
your name or for you because your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And you have exalted your name and your word. You see, that is, that's a curious statement in verse 3. On the day I, or no, in verse, into verse 2, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. David is saying, in a sense, all the works of God of old will pale in comparison to the fulfillment of the covenant promises to which David is looking for. Think about all the mighty acts of God in all of Israel's history. David said, all that's going to pale in comparison to what God has yet to do, what he has promised to do. The work of covenant faithfulness that God has promised will surpass all of his works in history. And then in verse 3, David has already seen a foretaste of this work of deliverance in, in his own heart. Look what he says. On the day I called you, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. David could give thanks because God had already increased his faith. David had already experienced his internal work in him. David understood that, that he had been born again, that he knew by faith these promises were true, and the more that he meditated upon that, the more the strength of his soul increased. you find that to be true? When we meditate upon the promises of God, we meditate upon his word, isn't our faith stirred? Isn't it increased? And we know the opposite is also true, isn't it? When we neglect to meditate upon God's word, when we neglect to contemplate his promises, don't we find our faith slipping? Isn't that the point when we're often more discouraged, more tempted to despair? Matthew Henry said, If God give us strength in our souls to bear the burdens, resist the temptations, and do the duties of an afflicted state, if he strengthen us to keep hold of himself by faith, to maintain the peace of our own minds, and to wait with patience for the issue, we must own that he has answered us. And we are bound to be thankful. In other words, as you look at your own, your, your meditations of your own mind and heart, and you see evidence that God is subduing in you those idols that remain, that in itself is cause of thanksgiving. Because God's word is true. He's keeping his word in you. He has promised to finish the good work that he began. And you begin, as you see in that process of sanctification, that God is doing that work. Thanks, be encouraged by that. That's cause for thanksgiving. As we meditate together on our thankfulness to God, may his Holy Spirit increase our faith. May he increase our faith as we observe how he strengthens our souls in the midst of trouble. And we give thanks with our whole hearts because God keeps his word. Well, then in the second stanza, God, uh, David goes on to praise the Lord and give thanks to God in, in a, from a different vantage point. He's looking inwardly in the first stanza. This is what God has done in me and through the nation of Israel. He's kept his word. Well, now he sort of takes the camera lens, as it were, and points it to the nations. And he gives thanks because God rules above all authorities, all powers, all kings. He says in verse 4, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high... He regards the lowly, 
but the haughty, he knows from far. The significance here of the name of God is not confined to just one particular king in Israel. He says all the kings in all the world are bound to sing the praise of God. The name of God is so mighty, so holy, so powerful, so awesome, that ultimately all authorities will bow before him. This is the promise we find in the New Testament, isn't it? That one day, every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, and every tongue will confess him as Lord and King. Some excitedly, willingly, voluntarily, others by force will be subdued. The Bible teaches us that this is expressly expressed ultimately in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? This, this triumphant, glorious victory over all the nations. Paul testifies in Philippians 2, for example. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. This is the promise. And David, as it were, is looking forward to that. Again, he's building upon what he's saying in the first stanza. That God, God keeps his word. That God is going to establish a royal dominion, a royal throne. And one day, that very ruler, that very king, that offspring that would come from David, would rule over everything would be exalted above every power, every authority. The name of our sovereign God is is the one to whom we give thanks because because he rules over everything. And, And David is not teaching a universalism here. He's not saying that every man will come to know the Lord. Everyone will come by faith. But David is is not teaching that. He's teaching rather that praise will come willingly from all those who humble themselves before the Lord. That's the substance of verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. David here is meditating upon what we call call the transcendence of God. He is outside of his creation. He is above his creation. And yet, he looks down, as it were. He looks to the lowly. He looks to the humble. He looks to the contrite of heart. And, and, and David is making the distinction that our Lord Jesus would much, would much later make. As he told a parable of, of, of a man standing out of the temple, a tax collector, so ashamed of his own sin that he dared not even cast his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus contrasted that. He said almost to the effect of, well, look on the other side of the auditorium there. And there's a Pharisee who stands and he prays, Haughtily. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe all that I have from all that I have. I fast twice a week. And he goes on to list all the things that he does. And Jesus asked his followers, who went away that day justified? The humble man. The contrite man. The man who was broken over his sin. 
David is teaching that all kings, all powers, have a duty to give thanks to God. And that those who will not humble themselves, those who will not honor God as God, will face devastating consequences. All nations, all kings, all authorities, on the other hand, who humbly acknowledge the Lord, will receive blessing. All those who exalt themselves and refuse to give praise to the one true God will not find his favor. Now next week, in the context of, of Judges 19, we'll look at Romans 1. Inevitably, we have to. But, but in Romans 1, we, we, we have this list of all these grievous sins where God has handed men over to the corruption of, the, of their own hearts, the, the, the debasement of their own minds, wicked things that, that about which we don't even want to speak. And yet Paul has to speak to that issue. But you know where all that starts? It doesn't start with homosexuality. It doesn't start with, with idolatry and all those things. It starts with a refusal to give thanks to God. Paul says that's the real issue. They did not give thanks to God. Even though the, the things of God were plain in creation and the man's conscience, it was, it was, they suppressed that truth and unrighteousness, and they refused to honor God as God. They refused to give thanks to God. They refused to acknowledge God. And Paul repeats that over and over again throughout the latter half of chapter 1. When a people, when a nation, when an individual will not give thanks to God, will not acknowledge him as creator and Lord, there is always, every time, devastating consequence. Without exception. The name of our God, the name of David's God, is sovereign over all. But I ask you this morning, will you ask the Lord to increase your faith, to believe that very thing? I mean, I, I know if I, if I pulled you all one by one, you would all, I think, all say, yes, I believe that. But ought we not seek to grow in that? To have the Lord increase that conviction within us? Again, David's writing here in the context of trouble. We'll see this in verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble. Brothers and sisters, if you don't believe that you walk in the midst of trouble, we need to have a conversation later. You're not paying attention to something, or everything maybe. We walk in the midst of trouble, don't we? David recognizes this, and he knows he needs to meditate upon these things. And there is a duty for all men to praise God because he is over all things. Not only because he keeps his word, but also because he is an authority above all things. And, and we have even greater light than what David had. This morning in Sunday school, we were looking at the baptism of Christ, which, which confronts us with John the Baptist. And, and our Lord Jesus said, among those born of women, no one was greater than John the Baptist. But he goes on to say, but I tell you this, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How can that be? Because we have a greater light, a greater revelation that even John had. John died before Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and ascended to heaven and exalted to God's right hand. You and I, by the, by the power of the Spirit revealed in the Word of God, know how it ends. John was looking forward to that promise. We've seen the fulfillment of that promise. Now we have an even greater promise yet to come when the Lord returns and ransoms us, brings us to full glory with him. It's not just our kings in our governing spheres or in, the in, or in industry 
that need to be reminded of this duty to recognize the name of God as sovereign over all things. As God's people, don't we need to recognize that his name stands above every authority? That, that the name of God stands above every sphere of life? What, what, what rules you? David mentions the beginning of this, beginning of this, this or back into the first stanza, before the gods, I sing your praise. He recognized the reality of the human condition, that we are by nature idolaters. By nature, we, we will worship. Even those we who've, who've been born again, who have a new heart given to us, aren't we still tempted in those ways? Aren't we tempted to find other things, and we will voluntarily relinquish authority to that, those other things? So I'd ask you to consider, what are those things for you that compete with the all-sufficient name of the Lord Jesus Christ? What, what stands as king? Is it king illness? You want to bow before king illness? Or king cancer? King singleness? Or king infertility? Or king financial burden? Or king marriage difficulty? Or king remaining sin? What king do you think are you tempted to believe is still over Christ? Where do you need the Spirit's work in you to increase your faith? No, Christ stands over that too. There is no authority. There is no sphere. There is no dominion. He stands over Christ. He always worthy of our praise because, first of all, he keeps covenant. He keeps his word. Secondly, he's worthy of praise from our whole hearts because he rules and he governs over all authorities. And not just those authorities out there, but can't, just as we can create idols out of nothing, can't we create authorities out of nothing? Aren't we tempted to, to bow before something that has no authority over us? Sometimes there's, there's, there's few things worse to the conscience of, of a sincere believer than a, a, a falsely informed conscience. Oh, I'm wrong to do this. Why do you think you're wrong to do that? Does God's word say that you're wrong to do this? Or have you invented some authority over you? Remember in the early years of, of, of homeschooling, we had to wrestle with this. You know, when you're out in the grocery store at, at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, and the stranger thinks they have the right to ask, well, why are your kids here in school? Hmm, none of your business. But, but there was a part of our conscience that said, ooh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And at that moment, we had allowed some invented, imagined authority to rule over us. And it took a conscious, deliberate effort to go back to God's word by the power of his spirit and say, no, I submit myself to Christ and his word. My conscience should be clear in this. I don't need to submit myself, certainly to some, some stranger at the Winn-Dixie on a Tuesday. But you see, it's not hard for us to get there, is it? It's not hard for us to imagine authorities over us. Some of those are legitimate authorities, but they don't have authority in the sphere. We've faced this over the last couple of years, haven't we, as a nation, as, as churches in this area of, of COVID, where, where the civil magistrate has thought, well, we're going to command you in this particular area. Respectfully, sir, you're not in charge here. Christ rules here. Christ and his ordinances are, are, are where I place my submission, not to some health official in the public sphere. Very important we understand those distinctions and recognize where our consciences are bound and where they ought not to be bound. And David testifies 
that God is, is worthy of his thanksgiving because he rules and he governs above every sphere and every authority. Let's see in the very last stanza. God is worthy of our thanksgiving because he rescues and delivers. I think you'll see as we, as we run through the last, we work through the last stanza, David's psalm is not comprehensive. He's not in any way, shape, or form attempting to articulate all the reasons for which God is worthy of our thanksgiving. As, as to, to paraphrase the Gospel of John, if that were true, all the books in the world would not contain the things that could be written in that regard. David is simply meditating upon particular attributes, particular works of God. So here, he meditates upon God's delivering, God's rescuing and deliverance. David looks beyond his immediate place and his immediate circumstances, and and he expands his field of view to include even eternity. He looks beyond his present trouble. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. And David, by saying that, doesn't mean just for today you preserve me physically. And David is looking to eternity. We'll see the evidence of this. Because he says, you fulfilled your purposes in me. Your steadfast love, your covenant love endures forever. Even in the midst of all kinds of trouble that this world can bring, saints, we may yet be confident that our God, our God, unique among all the the false gods that are professed among the lips of men and the minds of men, our God alone can deliver. Our God alone can rescue. And we ought to seek to grow by God's grace and by his power and our confidence in that. I think it's at this particular point that we often falter, don't we? We often fail to think that God can actually deliver us. God can actually rescue us. God can actually fulfill in us what he said he's going to do. And notice the, the, the sense of poetic piling up of words that he uses. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me, preserves, delivers. And in verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose. And David sings about two main features of God's rescue of us. Two main features. Number one, it's certain. Number one, it's certain. Secondly, personal. It's certain and it's personal. Look, look how he speaks of God's certainty, the certainty of God's deliverance. So I'll walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And this is why I love preaching the Psalms. And this is why when we finish Judges, we're going to spend some time in the Psalter for several weeks. Because the Psalter expands to us, in a sense, all of redemptive history. And it's rich in, in poetic allusions to God's work in other seasons, other times of history. So when you read here, again, this is, this, he's using poetic image. So when you read this, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. What comes to mind? If you were a Jew in Israel, singing along this, this, this hymn that David had written, and the words, you stretch out your hand, what would have immediately come to mind is the Exodus, where by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, God rescued his people from the clutch of Pharaoh 
in Egypt. So when David says, stretch out your hand, and he makes this allusion to the Exodus, what he's saying poetically is, in other words, Yahweh has rescued before, I know he'll do it again. We know. I know as king, we know as a nation, God is perfectly capable against all odds, against all adversaries, against the mightiest army on the planet. The outstretched arm, mighty hand of God, we have been delivered. So our deliverance is certain. But he also says in verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Again, this is covenant language. God is going to fulfill. He's going to keep the promise that he made. He's going to finish what he said he would do. This is certain. And once again, David makes an appeal to the hesed, the steadfast love, the covenant faithfulness, which endures forever. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures. David sings that God's deliverance is absolutely certain. But he also takes note that not only is it certain, but it's personal. Personal. Not only could David sing that his rescue by God was, was, was inevitable, infallibly certain, but he knew that his rescue was personal. It was near. Yahweh is not rescuing from afar. Yahweh is not rescuing by means of some impersonal force or impersonal system or mechanism. Notice, notice the repetition of the word hand. Again, it's poetic imagery. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand delivers me. And then at the last verse, do not forsake the work of your hand. So why, why, is, why is this important? Why is this here? Now, does God have hands? Children, you know, the, you know the catechism. What is God? God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men, right? God does not have hands like we have hands. Now, for you kids, you don't, have to remem- mem- you don't have to memorize this word. You can if you want to, if you want to impress your other friends. Anthropomorphism. And, and it's a theological word that means there are words described in the Scriptures, words given that describe, in a sense, anatomical features of God that we know he doesn't have, but it's language that accommodates to us and helps us to, in a sense, imagine God's work. We know God doesn't have hands, but it is no less testified that by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, he delivered from Egypt, for example. Or that we could find shelter under his wings. Well, God doesn't have wings. It's an accommodation of language to us. But what does it signify that God's hand would save? It means God is close. It means God is near. It means God is personally, actively involved. I mean, we even use expressions like this. Well, I don't want to get my hands dirty with that. Now, we might mean that, mean that literally, working the yard. I don't want to get my hands dirty. But usually we mean it figuratively, don't we? I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be involved personally in that. Or we, I keep things at arm's length. It's an expression we'll use, meaning we don't want to be personally involved. David testifies that his God's own hand is at work in his deliverance, in his rescue. 
And because David understood that his God is a personal God, he draws near to the lowly. So David says, do not forsake the work of your hands. David is not saying, you know, there's a possibility that God could turn his back on me. There's a possibility that God could abandon me. David's not saying that at all. David is praying in confidence based on the steadfast love of God, based on the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. God will fulfill his purposes. Because he understood that his redemption, his rescue, his deliverance was not the result of an impersonal force, not the result of a faraway being, but rather the special object. He was the special object of God's affection. The kids, once again, if you, if you make something, if you paint a picture for your mom or your dad, do you just usually paint pictures and then immediately throw them away? Or if you work on a project with your dad or your mom and you make something, don't you, doesn't, doesn't you want to hold on to that and, and display it and show it? I, I, I am a dabbler of woodworking, and, and I, don't, I can't imagine spending hours creating something and then just to throw it away. There's something, there's a part of me that's in that creation. I think that's hardwired into man. It's hardwired into women to, to, to want to create for the glory of God, to, to create something that endures, that's beautiful. Well, we have a natural tendency to want to preserve the work of our hands. Now, how much more? How much more is our Heavenly Father willing to preserve the work of his own. That which he has done personally, that which he has forged and created, David confidently believes that he is the work of God's hands. And therefore, God is not going to forsake him. Now, isn't this the the, the true full glory of the incarnation? Is that it was far beyond just the hand of God that he extended to us. the eternal second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, entered into space and time, entered into the world that he had made and took on humanity. Far more than just a hand. He took on our whole body, our whole soul, our whole human person. And God would draw so near to man that the Son of God takes on our skin bears our infirmity, experiences our weakness. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and in this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Explicitly, the Bible says, you, saint, are his workmanship. He has, as it were, formed you with his own hands. Now that has echoes of what happened in the garden, right? God takes the dust of the earth by his hand, we're told, and forms it into Adam. Now, by the hand of God, we are made anew in the image of the second Adam. We are his workmanship. We have been handcrafted, as it were, 
in the very image of God. If you are in Christ, do you think of yourself this way? Do you think of yourself as the work of God, the workmanship of his own hand? Now, if we think about that, um, it might tempt us to think that, well, okay, I will grant that. I'm the workmanship, but I'm kind of like that crooked piece of pottery that gets made in the second grade that won't really stand up. It's the ashtray that no one but a mother could love. And there's some truth in that. But David rested his hope in the fact that God had personally been involved in his deliverance. And not only that, he was going to fulfill all of his purposes. He's going to complete the good work. And, and the apostles pick up on this same theme. Because we are the work of God, because we are his workmanship, because God draws near to us into that work, and he has promised irrevocably and infallibly to finish that work, Paul could testify to the Philippian church, for example. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't Paul saying something almost identical to what David sings here? The Lord will fulfill his purpose in me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. Alexander McLaren makes this observation. He says, because Jehovah's loving kindness endures forever, every man on whom his shaping spirit has begun to work may be sure that no exhaustion or change of these is possible. God is not as the foolish tower builder who began and was not able to finish. He never stops till he has completed his work. And nothing short of the entire conformity of a soul to his likeness and the filling of it with himself can be the termination of his loving purpose or his achieving grace. And you are the workmanship of Christ if you're in him. God has, as it were, with his very own hands made you. And by his very own hands, angel. May the Spirit of God help us uh, to give thanks this morning for this very reason that we stand secure as workmanship of God Himself. He has promised infallibly to finish the work that He's begun in us. In, in many days, it won't feel that way. Will it? If you've walked with Christ more than, I don't know, 24 hours, you, you know that, right? You know that there are times when it doesn't feel like I'm making any progress. It doesn't feel like God is really at work in me. Yeah, this is where David comes back and says, this is, this is where my surety, this is where my, my, my security has to stand. By his very own hand, by his mighty right hand even, is both personal and powerful. That he's going to finish the work that he's begun. Now, my sermon title was in Intentionally, a little bit of a play on words. Sermon title is "Thanks from a Whole Heart." And David, I think, intends this this idea here in verse back to verse one. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. He means two things by this: one, a heart that's that his entire being. Spoke of that already. The entirety of his personhood needs to give thanks. But also, he worships with a heart that has been made whole. He worships from a heart that is now a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. 
He's the recipient of grace. He's been born again. If you're in Christ, you have the opportunity to give thanks in a way the pagan can never do. We, we can, it is right for us as, as, as a church to declare to the nations, to declare to our civil authorities. And we do that, even as you sign your name on a, on a letter to a civil authority this morning uh, for whom we prayed. We'll send those letters out this week, and they will be reminded of their duty to serve God. Those who are outside of Christ don't have the capacity to give God thanks as they are. But if you're in Christ, you have the opportunity to give thanks with your whole heart, both your entire being and also a heart that has been made whole, that has been quickened by the power of the Spirit, been made alive by grace. Only that heart that's been transformed by the grace of Christ, that's been revealed in the gospel and accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, can give the kind of praise that God deserves and the kind of thanksgiving that is commanded of us. So the question before you is, do you know, do you know this transforming work of God's grace and power? I mean, as you consider yourself, is your heart whole? Is it the same dead heart that you were born with? all of us are born with the same heart. The same rotten, thinking, decaying stone, the Bible calls it. Hard, impenetrable. It will not bend, it will not yield. And yet by the power of the gospel, you've been born again, you've been given a new heart. It comes with that new, new, new affections, new will, new desires, new appetites. Those all come in a, in a moment. Your new heart does, but the affections that flow from it take time to develop, don't they? Promise is offered to you today that if you believe that God has sent his own son into this world to die for sinful men, today can be the day you, you receive a whole heart, a new heart. If you will believe that there was no other way to reconcile you to God and that you needed to be reconciled to God, if you believe there was no other way for that to happen except by the hand of God coming upon you, the full body of Christ coming upon you, that you've offended the God whose justice demands that his wrath be poured out upon you and that there's no other way for that dilemma to be solved other than Christ coming in the flesh and dying as both God and man, living as Perfect divinity, dying as a perfect, sinless, spotless man. Believe that Jesus offered up his own body as a perfect sacrifice for you, in your place and in your stead. Believe God has raised him from the grave, just as the scriptures foretold, just as David, seeing through a, through a glass dimly, even more dimly than the glass through which we look, Right? David was seeing through a glass dimly, but he was seeing the right thing. He's seeing that God would raise up king, a deliverer, ransomer, preserver of life. According to the scriptures, Christ has come. Now the Lord has exalted him above every name, above every authority. So now we can give thanksgiving to God. As David's saying, we, we can give thanks to God because we, we, we know he keeps his word. We know he keeps his word. 
His covenant is sure. His name is sure. Infallibly, cannot be taken away. Promises of God are always yes and amen to those who believe them. We also give thanks to God because in spite of everything going on around us, as we walk in a time of trouble, as we see proud men, proud women boast about the authority that they have and how others ought to submit to them, we can be confident in the fact that Christ rules over all authority. And our only duty is to submit to him. And where he requires us to submit to other authorities, we do. And finally, we, we, we can be thankful to God. We can express our thanksgiving to God because even in the midst of trouble, He is at work fulfilling His promises in us. He is in the, in the business and at the task of completing the good work that He has. Pray together. God and our Father, we thank You would help us to give you thanks with our whole hearts. You have now made us alive in Christ. You have filled us with your Spirit. You have granted to us the privilege of hearing and reading your precious and very great promises. Father, will you stir up in us a a lively faith, growing faith, most of all, a true faith. Cling to these things, knowing that Christ clings to us. We thank you for your word. I thank you for the common grace that we, that we see, that we have experienced as a nation. I pray that your common grace will once again pour out like water on dry land. We pray for your special grace to come. The work of your spirit to bring revival in our own hearts, in our community, in our nation. We pray for the glory of Christ's own name. You will bring many other sheep who are not yet yet part of your fold into not only this local body, but into all true churches. Christ can receive the praise for which he is. We ask this in his name.